number 31. We thank you again for being with us, and I hope you will be back for the evening service tonight, 6 o'clock. Brian will open the scriptures to us, and Patch and Tyre will make a presentation. So I hope you'll come and be a part of the evening service tonight. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 31, the Bible says, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Great passage of Scripture. I read the passage, and as I've talked about before, there are a series of questions that are asked here at the closing of chapter 8. I love books, and my library, I think, is a testimony of the fact that I accumulated books over the years, and I still accumulate books. I, I never turned out a free book anywhere, anytime, place. I don't care what the subject matter is. I have books in my library that I would never recommend anybody else ever read. Uh, They're probably nothing but to print trash. But the fact is, I've always seemed to glean something from all of them. Some years ago, somebody gave me a book, and uh, it's uh, unique, and I wouldn't give this book away for anything, though it didn't cost me anything, and it actually didn't cost the people who gave it to me anything. The title of the book is The Family Book of Questions and Answers. Uh, you just, everybody's got to have one of these kind of books in your library. And uh, what it has is it has hundreds, if not thousands, of questions and their answers. And uh, I've checked them out with other sources, and, and they're legitimate. They, they're a company that produces a lot of dictionaries, Encyclopedia Britannica, that kind of thing. And so the answers or the questions are legitimate, and the answers they give are legitimate. So it's interesting sometimes just to sit down and take this book and, and just sort of go through it, you know, see what it says. For instance, let me see how smart you are. Uh, what is a fire damp? A fire damp. Anybody from West Virginia here? fire damp. Your father was a miner, wasn't he, Bob? Let me tell you what a fire damp is. It is the poisonous gas that's found in every coal mine. Now, how many of you know what fire damp is? Let's make sure we get our lesson down well there. You'll be tested on that next Sunday morning, but neither here nor there. What's doldrums? Now, originally, not, not what it's come to mean, but what was it originally? What's doldrums? That's exactly right. It's a, it's a place where there's absolute calm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a unique, and it's near the equator, and, and um, it's one of those places that's just unique. It's called doldrums. We have since made it to become people who are sort of down. You know, if you're downcast, you're discouraged, you're, you know, you're called you in the doldrums. But originally, doldrums is that place near the equator where it's absolute calm. 
you know, it's just unusually, uniquely, um, I guess, unique area is the best way to describe it. It's called a unique zone. What's the what's called and what is the Plimsoll line? The Plimsoll line. Anybody know what a Plimsoll line is? You wouldn't unless you're near the ocean, because in the ocean, all the ocean cargo carriers have a line that's marked along the, the outside of it. It's called the Plimsoll line. The man who, who figured this thing out was called Samuel Plimsoll. And what he did was he calculated how much cargo, weight-wise, each ship could handle. And they mark a line on every cargo ship. It's called the Plimsoll line. It means you better not load it any higher than that. That's the, that's the capacity line on every cargo ship, the Plimsoll line. Now, I thought I could educate you on these points, and I'm glad that you're, you know, you're, you're more educated than you were before. What I find interesting is about these, most of them I have never heard of in my life. I mean, I have never heard of, and I probably never will hear of, and I classify them in two categories. I say they're interesting, but non-essential questions that have answers. But I say to you, they are questions that have essential answers, and you better get those, and you better know them well. Uh, for instance, I was... Uh, listening not all that long ago, a few years ago now, to a program, Larry King. In fact, what I saw was a reproduction because somebody told me what was on it, and I turned on and tuned in. In fact, I think somebody gave me the video of it, and I listened to this broadcast. And what happened was, it was asked the question, uh, who across history would you most like to interview? And Larry King, who is a Jewish man, said, Jesus Christ. And then he added, I would ask him if he indeed was virgin-born because the answer to that question would define all of history. So said Larry King. Well, Mr. King was right in noting the importance of the question, but he is wrong, he is wrong in not accepting the answer God's already given. He's right in his assumption that this is the most important question or one of the most important questions you could ever ask, but the fact of the matter is, God's already given the answer. Matthew chapter 1, verse number 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. And verse 25 of the same chapter, And Joseph knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Jesus Christ was virgin born. And I'm very sorry that Larry King, as smart a Jewish man as he is, does not know that. And I, I'd save him a lot of trouble having to wait to meet the Lord Jesus later and ask him the question. He could know right now because God's already spoken. Also, on another occasion, Larry King's program, he was talking to Barbara Walters, who happens not to be one of my most favorite interviewers. Larry King asked her who she would like to most interview in all of history and all the people. And Barbara Walters, without even blinking, said, Jesus Christ. Mr. King asked her, what would you ask him? Barbara Walters said, and I quote, I would ask him if I was going to heaven. She was right in asking the right person. She's wrong in thinking that you have to ask him the question. You don't have to ask him that question. I can tell you now, Christ has made it crystal clear who he was and is and what he came to do and did. It is finished. It's complete. And the fact of the matter is, John chapter 1 says, He came unto his own, his own received him not, but as many as received him. To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. The choice is yours. Christ has already done all that's necessary and needed, and for Barbara Walters and Larry King and everybody else. 
And all they have to do is acknowledge who Jesus Christ is, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, believe on Him and His finished work, and they can be born again. Simple and sweet. Does not put them in a separate category because they're different people or may think themselves more important. Interesting to me that once you and I have made a decision to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which God is gracious to make sure happens, once that decision is made, it's an amazing thing to me that the, the Bible is overflowing with encouragement for you and for me to have an, a certain assurance, a confidence that we are indeed in God's family and in some day we'll go to be with the Lord in heaven. One thing that strikes you as you review the various systems of salvation, so-called, the systems of work salvation as it is, is that there is no set standard that guarantees that at such and such a point, after doing such and such things, you're absolutely, unequivocally, undoubtedly going to go to heaven. The followers of these work salvation systems have never know for sure whether or when they have done enough to get into heaven. And I don't know of anything that so underlines that as what happened just a few weeks ago, and you probably heard it on the evening news and probably didn't catch a bit of what happened. And that is the case. Did you hear about the, uh, the guy up in uh, Milwaukee? His name was Terry Ratsman who shot those church people. Did you hear about that? I don't know, eight or ten people got killed, and this guy Ratsman killed these people in a church. And in fact, he even killed the pastor. His name was Pastor Randy Gregory and his son James, who was 16 years of age. He killed him, seven others, or seven of them in total. What was interesting about this, this whole thing was about salvation by works. Salvation by works. That's exactly why the ratsmen kill these people. And it goes into an article that this one appeared in World Magazine. It says the church, which is uh, the living church of God, which is a, a branch off of the uh, Armstrong church, said it broke off from the world church of God after the latter group turned from a um, coercive and authoritarian Armstrongism to embrace Orthodox Christianity, teaching the salvations by grace. So this living church of God doctrine now mainly mirrors the old Armstrongism, mixing Jehovah's Witness style works, theology with an Old Testament legalism, wondrous uh, offerings and tithes, and sometimes complete a ministerial control over every single one of its members, its life's decisions, and especially it likes to control the financial decisions of those families in the church. Quote, these people are subjected to incredible pressures to perform works and are always unsure of their status before God, said Bill Holman, a former World Church of God member for more than 25 years who now works to deprogram others who leave that similar group. You, uh, if you live in that every day, wondering if you've done enough, if you're good enough under the ministry, you're constantly emphasized to do more works, to be sure and make certain that you're not on some kind of probation with God, then you can see how there is no surprise that somebody would do what Ratzman did. And their point is that Ratzman did what he did because Ratzman was frustrated in the fact that just a week or so before the pastor had preached a message on the fact that somebody had not lived up to what they should be doing in order to be uh, off of probation with God. And the point of the article and the point of the whole story is this guy just simply got frustrated. It seems like every time he turned around, somebody was raising the bar one more inch and he could never meet salvation's demands. Isn't it interesting that we can read about something in the paper, seven people get killed, and most of the folks in the country just think it's some nut who went crazy? This guy wasn't crazy. This guy was realizing that he was never going to make it to heaven because they kept raising the bar on him. 
And if every week you showed up at the New Life Baptist Church, if I kept raising the bar and say, by the way, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is not enough. Now what you've got to do is you've got to trust Christ, you've got to get baptized, you've got to join the church, and you've got to give at least half of your income to the church. And also, by the way, uh, you've also got to produce 45 hours of Christian service to the New Life Baptist Church every single week or you ain't going to make it. You, you, you see how crazy it would be if every week we added some dimensional thing? Well, that's what they did. And that's why this fellow said, I've had enough. Best way to do that is kill the messenger. And he did. Kill the pastor of the church and six others of his members. And most of those folks were involved in some way or what they call the inner circle of the church's operational ministry. Well, let me tell you, I thank God that the salvation that the Bible speaks about removes all doubt, all wonder, all worry, and gives full and absolute assurance that a person can know Jesus Christ as Savior and be certain of it all the way until they close the casket lid on his face. And I tell you this, I don't know that I could take you to a single Bible verse that a person who has trusted, truly believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Savior had any doubts or fears regarding the uncertainty of their relationship with Jesus Christ. My point is, it is as if in time, after and since the Scriptures were given to us, it's since then that man began to somehow doubt whether he could really know God or not. I mean, in fact... The very contrary is true that there is absolutely plenty of passages in the Bible that talk about and show forth a great assurance, a great confidence of knowing for sure, for certain, that you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work and you're going to heaven. The Bible is full of those. But what the Bible is not full of is illustrations of people who doubted their salvation. I would challenge you to find any. I didn't find any. I would look through passages that people would refer to. Say, well, I think this guy maybe doubted his salvation. I, I think it was a stretch. I, I haven't found a single one. There's a book out that talks about the doubts they had. And, I, and every doubt this guy talks about them having, I think, is a fabrication. I didn't see any doubt in those statements. I'm simply saying it seems like our society and its mindset and mentality has somehow twisted the truth of Scripture to make people wonder whether or not you can really be sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. Let me assure you of something. The Bible says in 1 John chapter number 5 and verse number 13, These things have I written unto you that believe that you may know that you have eternal life. The fact of the matter is you can know. And anybody who tells you you can't know that you have eternal life, one of two things is ignorant of what the Bible teaches or is a deceiver and a worker of the devil. Because God for sure did not want you wandering around on this earth trying to figure out whether you're going to get to go to heaven or not. You don't have to be a Walter, Barbara Walters mindsetted person. You don't have to say, well, I'd like to talk to Jesus so I could get first-hand account whether or not I'm going to heaven. May I assure you, this is first-hand account. This is God's Word. This is what He said. This is what God has decreed. This is what He has stated. And so what the Bible says is as good as if and is, in fact, what fell from God's lips. So my point is that there is no reason for you to doubt. Nonetheless, Romans chapter 8 and these verses that we're covering and have covered for the last few weeks is the foundation upon which such confidence is based. Let me take you back to last Sunday, verse 31 and verse 32. Paul wrote Romans 8:31. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? I mentioned to you then the if at the beginning of that question in verse 31 can be translated. It's the same Greek word that's translated elsewhere for since or because. So since God is for us, who can be against us is the way the question is phrased. And the truth is what he is saying is 
since God is for us in that he has provided this re great redemption plan called salvation, then the question is, who can match an omnipotent God and stopping that salvation or cutting it loose or in somehow taking it away from you? That's the question. Who can match God on taking away from you the salvation that he provided you with? So since God is for us, who can match up to God and take our salvation away? That's the question. And the fact of the matter is, it is stated in that verse, verse 31, says, If God be for us, who can be against us? Then he says, Who spared not his own son. By the way, the emphasis in using that word, his own son, distinguishes him, Jesus Christ, from all the rest of us who were adopted into God's family, as it were. And his point is, God that spared not, that is, he did not withhold his own son because his son died for you. You know, the world quotes John 3.16 so previously, For God so loved the world, and that world is you and me and everybody else here. For God so loved the world that he gave, or he gave up his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him, whoever leans and depends and trusts in the work that Jesus Christ did, shall not perish but have everlasting life. So my friend, the point made in this passage of Scripture, verse number 32, is that God did not hold back the most precious gift this world has ever known. He did not spare. He did not hold back His own Son. But verse 31 or verse 32 says, He delivered Him up for us all. And if He's done that, if He gave up His Son for you, the question is, how would He not give us a whole lot of lesser things that we need? And the answer is, Absolutely no way would he hold back anything. So that's the passage. Note something else, though, and it's very important, too, is that since God did not do that, Romans 8 and 5, 8, we quote quite often, but God commended his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You should understand that, that God doesn't expect you to come to him after you've cleaned your act up. He doesn't expect you to come to him and say, look, I'm going to do better. I, I promise. I'm going to turn over a new leaf, and I'm going to do much, 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 much better if you'll just accept me and give me salvation. Uh, that violates a whole concept of what salvation is. 5.8 says, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were still in an ungodly, depraved state, literally, that's where God loved us. He loved you at your worst so it's a, it'd be crazy not to think that he could love you when you were honestly trying to do right after you're saved. So the point made here in this context is God has done so much to save us. Shall he not do equally as much to keep us in that state? If he gave up his son to save us, is he not going to do everything in his power to keep us there? Otherwise, his son's death on the cross is a waste. You see, if your salvation is in your pocket or under your control then Jesus Christ died on the cross in vain. That's what he's saying. If your salvation is under your control, then God wasted the life of his dear precious son to die in your stead. And he said, I knew that. He gave him up for you because he knew Christ's death was your only hope of getting into heaven. And his point is, if I gave him up for you and I let him die for you, don't you know I'll do everything in my omnipotent power to make sure that salvation stays secure until you walk into the gates of heaven. Something else to be noted. Verse number 33 and 34 for today's message. I want you to see these two verses. They go together. Verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. So the question 
in the text is, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? And the answer is, no one because it is God that does the justifying. Nobody can charge God's people with anything because it's God who did the justifying. Now, let me uh, take you to a verse of Scripture, so follow my thinking, please, okay? Look, if you would, at the book of Job. Job is in the Old Testament, comes up just before the book of Psalms. In Job chapter 1, Job chapter 1, you know the story of this man. He was a man, verse 1 says, Job 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And down in verse number 5, he obviously took his religious responsibilities and his spiritual life seriously. Because of what he does in verse number 5, it was so when the days of their feasting, that's his sons and daughters, were gone, were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus did Job continually. Uh, his religion, if you want to call it religion, was not uh, uh, just a Sunday deal. It was not just a day when he would come in and, and worship the Lord and he'd forget it. His was a continuous thing. His thing was that maybe my sons and maybe my daughters, my five sons, three, three daughters, whatever it was he had, he says, it may be that they have sinned against God. And, and so my responsibility as a, a spiritual leader in my home is to take care of that. And so he offered up sacrifices for their sin. Here's a man who was serious about his faith, and here's a man who was religious and a man who practiced it day in and day out. Now look at verse 6 of chapter 1. The scene changes. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. The scene here is in heaven. The scene here is that Satan shows up before God Almighty. And by the way, do not ever get in your mind and don't enter and let anybody else drop the hint of this that Satan and God are equal in power they are not absolutely are not uh, you need to think of Satan as like a roaring lion but a lion that's got a collar and a chain and God holds the chain he can go so far do so much but only what God allows but he does allow him for whatever reason to show up into God's presence in verse number six then what's interesting verses nine to eleven is Satan saying, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Verse 10, Hast thou not made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. Verse 11, Job 1 says, But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath and he'll curse thee to thy face. What happens here is Satan makes a very broad sweeping accusation and he makes a charge against Job. And uh, Job is standing there on earth doing his sacrifices for his family. And Satan's up in heaven in the presence of God. And Satan says to God, he says, Job loves you and he serves you for what he can get out of you. He likes you because of what he gets from you. You shut down the goods and this guy will curse you to your face. Now that's the charge and that's the accusation that Satan made against Job. What's interesting about that, it must have been the going thing to do because if you recall in the passage a little later after Job is afflicted, his wife says to him, curse God and just die. Curse God and die. Just curse God and he'll take your life, it'll all be over, just be done with it. You see, my point made here in the context is that Job had somebody that was putting accusations against him. 
You don't have to turn to it in your Bible, but you can look at it later if you like. But in the book of Zechariah, the Old Testament, there is a passage in chapter 3, Zechariah chapter 3, and it begins and says, He showed me Joshua. This is a vision of Zechariah. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is it not this that a brand is plucked from the fire? In verse 3, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. It's an interesting passage because here in this vision, Zechariah sees Joshua the high priest standing before God Almighty. And there to the right of him was this person, Satan. And Satan was resisting whatever it was that uh, it, Joshua was communicating and sharing. It was that Satan was resisting that and making, as it were, accusations and charges against him. It's even an illusion in the text that, yes, he was. He was wearing a filthy garment. He was not wearing the beautiful priestly garb that he would be wearing. He's wearing a filthy garment. It's interesting, though, that God speaks in this context, and he says to Satan, he rebukes him first of all, and he says, is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? fact of the matter is, he says, I know what Joshua is. I know what he is. You don't have to tell me what he is. By the way, you can rest in something. God doesn't take any man's accusation of charges against another man. You can stay all night on your knees and make all the charges against me you want to make. Won't do you any good at all with God. Because God knows me. Save your breath. And if you get angry at somebody and you make all these charges before God, you better well save your breath because God already knows and God's not listening. And the fact is that what is amazing, not only in this story, but others, the fact, fact in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 12 and verse number 10, it's an interesting thing that Satan is called the accuser of our brethren. That's what this guy does all the time. By the way, something that even as I was studying for this message, it hit me just almost like a ton of bricks sitting at my, my desk. You see, be assured that Satan has already brought to God's attention some of your failings if you're saved by the grace of God. You can be sure of that. But I want to tell you something, and I want you to rest in this really well. This, to me, is an encouraging thing. It is not to say, listen carefully, it's not to say that all the accusations that Satan brings to God about you are not true. They may all be true. Every one of them. <laughs> if you're in my shoes, you give him plenty of ammunition. Why would he go search up some lie when he can take what actually I've done and say, well, here's what Rick Henry did. Here's what Rick Henry's done. Here's what he's doing. And here's how he acted. And this is what he said. And this is what he did. And this is where he went. You know, he doesn't have to take any lies. He just takes the truth. So let's assume for the sake of this that everything that Satan charges you with, you, you are absolutely, unequivocally guilty of. Just for the sake of the argument here. Maybe he lies. He's a liar. He's a slanderer. We know all that. But an accusation is not always false. You see, when you go down to file a charge in the, in the police department, you're making an accusation. Now, it may have to be proven in a court of law, but the fact of the matter is, it, it may absolutely be true, but it begins with a charge or an accusation. So the fact is, devil may be just taking what we really do and taking it before God and saying, look, you, you, this, this guy's a Christian. This woman's a Christian. Look what they did. Look what they, how they acted. Look how they behaved. 
uh, I would just remind you to go back to Romans chapter 8 and verse number 1 where the Bible is crystal clear. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. None. Doesn't God know what I'm going to do? Yes, God's omniscient. God knows everything from the beginning to the end and He sees it all. He knows it all. And He said there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. So I can assume and you can assume that every single charge that Satan comes before God with is absolutely just the truth. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Every single thing he charges you with is absolutely true. God will look at him and says, I rebuke you. Get out of here. These are just fire. These are just brands plucked from the fire. I know what they are. They're but dust. They're made out of the mud of the earth. But I breathe life into them and my son died for them and they're in my family and there's no condemnation to them. You get out of here. You get out of here. And that's what Romans chapter 8, verse number 33 is saying. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. God knows all these things. God knows every act you perform, every deed you do, every sin you commit. And he has said all this is known. This isn't just old hat. And the fact of the matter is, Satan just bringing it up to cause trouble. By the way... That reminds me to remind you of this. There's a difference between Holy Spirit conviction and satanic accusations. Don't forget that. For instance, if you're talking about Holy Spirit conviction, you're talking about something that's legitimate. Legitimate. What's legitimate about it is that when the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer, when you trusted Christ to save you, the Holy Spirit took up residence in your heart, and that's why we can say Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Holy Spirit is Christ representative in you and is your hope of glory and you're going to get there because and that word hope doesn't mean uh, hope so it's an assurance you're going to get there because the holy spirit indwells you he's going to see to that what he also knows is the mind of god he can make intercession for us because we don't always know what to pray for romans 8 26 said that and since he's inside and he knows what god wants and he knows what's good for you then he'll encourage as it were god to do certain things in your life that you don't have a clue about praying about now, here's the catch. That fact is that the Holy Spirit being there, also knowing God, knows what to convict you of and tells you when you're getting off track. That's legitimate. What's interesting about that, Satan makes accusations that are illegitimate because he almost always goes back to something that's already dealt with. It's already done. It's already confessed. It's already faced. And he brings that up, and he keeps bringing it up, and he keeps bringing it up. Sins that you may have dealt with in your past and confessed and turned from, and Satan keeps going back, digging up the bones and bringing them back. When I was growing up in Tennessee, I had an uncle who had a coon dog, beautiful blue tick coon dog. Uh, and by the way, when they talk about blue tick, being out and around the country, this dog had enough ticks on its ears as a kid. Should I, should I not? I love to take ticks off of dogs. <laughs> Isn't that exciting? How many of you ever taken a tick off a dog? Isn't that fun? Oh, that's fun, man. Get those tweezers down there and you wrestle with that tick, you know. And if he's not cooperating, you flip him a little bit. Finally, he says, I don't think I want to live here anymore. And he comes to for you. This dog, this dog had ticks on ticks. I mean, the ears were just covered because the dog ran in the woods all the time. Let me tell you what that dog would also do. My folks on Sundays always had fresh chicken to eat, and my uncle often provided those chickens to my grandmother who fixed them, and then they'd all come over for Sunday lunch, and my family often went there too. When grandfather would get through with the lunch on dinner, or the, the lunch at dinner time, what we would do is we'd go out and they'd take all the bones from that. They wouldn't give them to the dog, so what they do, they go, my granddad would go bury them in a certain place. That crazy blue tick coon dog 
would just lie down like he's not interested, you know, like he's so docile and dumb. Just look at you when you go by and watch all that. All the time, know exactly where the bones are going to be buried. And I'll guarantee you, before we could get in the house, get back down to whatever we were doing inside, the dog would have the bones and they'd all be lying on the back porch and the coon dog would be lying there on top of them. Dig them up every week. Then granddad would go get them and put them in a bag and then put them in the ground. Next week, the coon dog would have them back. Now, by the way, he didn't eat many of them, but he always dug them up. And they'd always be back on the back steps and they'd be straddled around there and just enough to irritate my grandfather and just really uh, challenge his spirituality. And my granddad would clean them all up and go bury them again. And next, next week, he'd dig the same ones up. It's just one of those things where the scent evidently disturbed him so much that he'd dig them up just like the devil. So you can deal with things with God legitimately and have them taken care of only to have the devil go back and dig them up and bring them back week after week and do it just enough to keep you off track in your progress in your Christian walk. That's not all, and there's more. The Holy Spirit convicts us specifically. Don't ever forget that. Holy Spirit doesn't convict generally. He convicts specifically. When something goes awry, He convicts us. He, as it were, hits the nail on the head, and we know exactly what He's talking about. The devil doesn't do that. He convicts generally or accuses generally. And that is to say, oh, you tell me you're a Christian. Your attitude, behavior, action, you're telling me you're a Christian generally. No specifics, just generally. Another thing that's unique and different between the Holy Spirit's conviction and the, holy, and the, the unholy Satan's accusations is the fact that the Holy Spirit convicts with the ideal of restoring. He wants to restore the sinning believer, get him back on track, get him back in a right fellowship with the Lord. Satan, on the other hand, accuses the believer destructively. He accuses him that he has gone too far. He can't come back. There are people who would normally be in the New Life Baptist Church to this hour who are today out there in the world, and some part of that is that the devil has said to them, you've gone too far. You can't ever come back. It's hopeless. There's no need of you praying. There's no need of you going back to church. You're just hopeless. And Satan's accusation is intended to be destructive, to keep you out of fellowship with the Lord and, as it were, drive a separational wedge between you and God. What you must remember, and even when the devil defeats you on occasion about this very issue, you remember this, that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. No matter what you feel on earth is going wrong, and no matter how bad you feel out of fellowship with God, you remind yourself of this. You have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. And God already knows all about you. And there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. So the world may condemn and other people may criticize and accuse. But the person who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work, it is a finished work. It does not have to be resurrected and redone ever so often because I get into trouble deeper than God thought I could. God knows how deep my troubles are, and he knows how deep I can dig a hole to get in them. But he also knows the accusations of the devil, and he knows how far they go. Look at verse number 34 of Romans chapter 8. In verse number 34, verse number 34 of Romans 8, he says, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. This is a great verse, and you need to really get acquainted with it. But let me read another verse to you, and, I, and I'd like for you to, if you write in your Bible, I recommend you write in your Bible by this verse. John chapter 5 and verse number 22. John chapter 5 and verse number 22. And I want you to see, John chapter 5 verse 22 says, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son.
And here in verse number 34 of Romans chapter 8, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who even is the right hand of God, who is also maketh intercession for us. In the side panel or column beside your, your in your Bible of John chapter 5, in verse number 22, you ought to write these few words. Only person, the only person who can condemn you died for you. The only person who can condemn you died for you. And if that does not secure salvation, I don't know what does. If the only person who can condemn you died for you, then pray tell, how can you be condemned? And that's what two verses put together. John chapter 5 verse 22 combined with Romans chapter 8 and verse number 34. Who is he that condemneth? The question is obvious. It is Christ that died for you. So you tell me, he, since he's in charge of all judgment, then who it is who can condemn you? He died for you. So who is he who can condemn you? If it is Christ who died for you and he has been assigned all judgment by the Father, then who's going to condemn you? That's a very important question, and it's important for you to keep note before you that it does not, it is not some frivolous kind of interesting word, but have no substance to it. Christ died for you, and he's the one who has all the judgment committed to him. I was reading in Romans chapter 4 this week, in verse number 5, it says, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. That's an interesting thing to say. It was not that we were first made godly and then justified. Rather, we were justified and then God works on making us godly. So don't let the world get to you and say, well, you've got to become good before you'll be justified before God. That's not true. God justifies the ungodly. And that's what makes it so unique and exciting and thrilling because we didn't have to get better to get saved or justified or forgiven. We were justified and then God works on it. Acts chapter 7 or 13. Acts chapter 13 verse 39. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the laws of Moses. It says in that verse, all that believe are justified from all things. And that's all the sins in the world. Anything you can mention or relate to and your mind can concoct that would be against you and against God, he says that he has justified you from them. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 17 says, And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Uh, I, I read this verse to you because God does not cancel our sin debt or forgive our sins for time only. For time only. What this verse of Scripture says, God's not leaving open the possibility that in eternity to come, somehow, some way, God gets upset and mad and angry, and He says, all those sins you committed, you're going to have to pay for. You see, Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 17 says, Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. And you ought to underline, no more. It either means no more, or it doesn't mean no more. If God means what He says, then He said, I'll never remember your sins again. Never again. They're forgotten, they're done away with, they're covered, and they'll never be brought up to you again. And by the way, you say, well, that's fine and good as long as God doesn't change his mind. I got the news for you. When we get over to Romans chapter 11, verse number 29, it'll tell you that the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. That says it's without God changing his mind. 
And the fact of the matter is, if God won't change his mind when it comes to calling and gifts, I can assure you he won't call, he won't change his mind when it comes to the salvation that's in Christ his son. He's not going to change his mind. So what he has said, he means, and what he means, he'll stick by. Every time God the Father looks at his children, he doesn't see you or me, he sees him who knew no sin. And in so looking, there's nothing to condemn. He has already condemned it, and his son has paid for it, and it's a settled deal. By the way, someone had a quote on a, on a bookmark. It said, Belief that has no pertinent foundation and no practical results ceases to be a belief. It is a fantasy. And that's absolutely right. A belief that has no pertinent foundation and no practical results ceases to be a belief. It is indeed a fantasy. So the question would be, is your salvation in your control, in your hands, is it a real belief? Does it have a real foundation and it have pertinent results or in a practical result? Or is it just something that is really a fantasy of yours? Well, let me show you from verse number 34, and we close this message with these points. In verse number 4 or 34, there are four points that are a pertinent foundation for your salvation. And you ought to really get to know these four things. First off, he's saying in verse 34, who is it that condemneth? And then it makes these four statements. One, it is Christ that died. Now listen to me carefully and get the argument we make. If a person is going to object to God saving sinful, ungodly people, it could not be another sinful, ungodly person. You follow me? If, if somebody's going to stand before God and say, I object to you saving these ungodly sinners then whoever it is that's objecting could not be an ungodly sinner. For a very simple reason. You have no basis of, of denying God's act of, of forgiveness. You, it's, you, he's in the same sinking boat that we're in. So if a guy's going to make an accusation or ask God objectively to say, you can't do this, then this guy can't be just another sinner. And God would know that. So the fact of the matter is, if someone has a right to object to a holy God saving unholy sinners it has to be a righteous person a sinless person that's an interesting thing you see because there was only one of those people and you know what he did for you he died for you he didn't object to God saving you in fact he said I'll go die for them and he did and so the first point of this passage of verse number 34 is so important because it makes a direct statement. It's this holy, sinless Son of God who died for you. He died for you. And so let me tell you, he's pointing to the fact that God the Father has already directed all his condemnation for sin in him. So the question is, who can condemn you? It's Christ, his only Son, that died for you. But there's a second part that backs up the first. He not only says that it is Christ that died, he says and the second point is, yea, rather, that is risen again. That's to simply say that Christ's resurrection is the receipt for the debt of sin that's been paid. It's God saying, God the Father saying, I accept the fact that my son died a sinless death on the cross of Calvary for the sins of the whole world, and I have raised him from the dead, and that resurrection states that this is a receipt that says all sin has been dealt with completely totally and absolutely there is no sin that has not been dealt with in the death 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the resurrection says. If there's any sin outside the resurrection, then I'm telling you there, folks, everybody can die and go to hell. Everybody. I don't care what you said you believe. It doesn't matter. If there's any sin outside of the umbrella of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because that's the receipt of the debt of sin being paid in full, then I'm telling you there's no hope of anybody getting to heaven. Because when the resurrection took place, it was God the Father's statement of approval that what His Son did was sinless and His act was total. And He's saying... It's all finished. Sin has all been dealt with. And it's been forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a third thing. He said, not only it is Christ that died, yea, rather it is risen again. It says also, who is even at the right hand of God. Right hand of God is, is a place of position of honor and authority. Uh, Hebrews chapter number 10 says, chapter 10 verse 11 and Every high priest or every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oft times the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, talking about Christ, this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Did you get that? For sins forever sat down on the right hand of God. I hope you know this. In fact, I know 90% of you know this and the other 10 can get it now. That there were no seats in the temple or the tabernacle. There were no places where a priest could ever sit down and say, Hey, I'm telling you, I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad I got this job done. There were no seats because that job was never done. There always had to be another sacrifice. There always had to be another yearly invitation to come into there and offer that sacrifice, pour that blood, sprinkle it on that altar. It just was an ongoing thing. That is all until one day on Calvary's cross, Jesus Christ died there once and for all. When he did that... Then you went to heaven, and what did he do? The Bible declares it succinctly. He sat down at the Father's right hand. He not only said on the cross, it is finished, he illustrated it being finished by sitting down on the Father's right hand. He said, it's all done. It's finished. All sin's been dealt with. It's forever, totally, absolutely, unequivocally dealt with. And I say to you this morning, that's good news for every one of us. There's a fourth thing in the verse. It does not only say that it is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God. But it also says, who also maketh intercession for us. While the Holy Spirit makes intercession in you, that's back over in Romans eight twenty six. it is Christ that makes intercession for you in heaven. So right this moment in heaven, Jesus Christ makes intercession for you as you have need. Especially when Satan comes along and makes an accusation that on your way to services this morning, you lifted your voice to your mate or one of your children out of order. You were wrong, and yet your ego wouldn't let you say, I'm sorry, and please forgive me, and it won't ever happen again. And you carried that old dirty, dusty thing into this service, and you may have hampered and hindered the Holy Spirit's work in somebody's life because that thing lies there, and it's just eating you alive. I have good news for you. In spite of what might ought to happen to you, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He's made intercession for you. He's saying, Father, this is under the sin. This, this sin that this guy's committed, this woman's committed, this kid's committed, all of this is under what I paid for. When I died on the cross and I came here and sat down, Father, you know as I know, it's all taken care of. And whatever this guy did, and no matter what he ought to have and what ought be done to him, the fact is he's one of mine. And, Father, I died for his sins, and his sins taken care of. And Satan spits and chews and stomps and leaves the room and... and God looks this way and smiles, and the Holy Spirit keeps prompting your heart to make sure that it gets right. You see, it's not the idea that it's okay to sin and just go do your thing. 
It just makes sure that you understand from a heavenly standpoint, God's taking care of that. You don't have to worry about it up there. What you need to concern yourself is right here. Right here. He'll take care of that. He's got that covered well. He'll, he'll handle every kind of accusation, charges are brought against you. You need not fear. Your absolute salvation is absolutely secure. And this passage of Scripture is emphasizing and highlighting those points. I say to you that when Christ died on the cross, He, he fulfilled one half of the high priestly responsibility that the Bible sets up so clearly. One is the offering of sacrifices. Christ did that Himself. And the second thing that the priest did was to make sure that he become a mediator between man and God. And Jesus Christ is doing that right now. He has died and he's offered the perfect sacrifice. That's a done deal. What he is doing right now is our high priestly work interceding in our behalf to the Father. And this morning I can encourage you, you have nothing to worry about on that end. And I encourage you that you accept that. So the question that we started and have as the title of the message is, who has the last word regarding your salvation? I would ask you, first of all, if you think you do, it means you're working hard to save yourself. i got some good news for you. You ought to quit right now and turn all of that work over to someone who's already finished it, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say to you that when you do that, you can rest in the love of the Lord and the love of the Heavenly Father and His care and concern for you. I've always been fascinated by Indians and, of course, being about one thirty-third. 32nd charity I guess that's part of why but I've always been and, and had an interest in Indian culture there is a story in one of the books I have about one of the uh, ways that they prove a young boy in uh, the Indian village and prove that he's a man and that is that uh, his father would take him out or send him out into the deep dark forest with a knife and a bow and arrow and the boy would have to spend the whole night out there alone in the un civilized forest and the whole idea was to give him brave and confidence and, and give him courage and heart in himself and the idea was to be able to use the knife and use the bow in the air to protect himself as was needed and so oftentimes the young boys in fact they started as early as eight or nine they'll start them on these ventures and they happen several times during the course of their life until the manhood what's interesting about it is they don't tell anybody but when the boy is out there and the boy wakes up in the morning or the boy is aware of what's around him in the morning. He looks up and notices that his father has been watching him all night long. He's just been standing just out of sight. And he stands there with knife in hand. And the father never slept a wink while he kept a watch on his son. You see, when you're born into God's family, you get better oversight than even that. Our Heavenly Father never slumbers nor sleeps. And he knows everything. He knows everything. He knows everything that's coming down your pike this week. And he knows what you ought to do to make sure you're prepared to face it. And I say to you this morning, when you belong to Christ, you belong to the Heavenly Father who watches over you. There's a song that we heard years ago, and I don't have the words to it. It came to me moments ago as I was getting up here to speak. My Heavenly Father watches over me. I don't know any kinder, sweeter, gracious, more encouraging words to know my Heavenly Father watches over me. Whatever I face, whatever I come up against, my Heavenly Father watches over me. And I tell you that my salvation doesn't rest in Rick Henry. It rests in my Heavenly Father, who loved me enough to send His only Son to die in my stead. My salvation is not of works. 
My works are done out of a love for my Heavenly Father for saving me without any merit of my own. That's good works. And whatever good works you have, I hope that you do them out of appreciation for the good grace of God that's been demonstrated to you. Do you know Him this morning? Is your salvation the last word concerning it? Is it with the Heavenly Father or is it with your own efforts? Are you trying to save yourself? Are you trying to be good enough that God will accept you? Please, my friend, give up that futile effort. It can't be done. Never has been. Never will be. Because God's got a grander plan. And that plan is finished. Our Father in heaven, how good and kind and gracious you are to us to save us when we were in a state of ungodliness. I thank you today from the depths of my soul for this great salvation. Thank you for the fact that you not only save us, but you grow us in your grace. You teach us your ways to know your mind and your heart. This morning, I pray, Father, that you'll open our hearts to these truths and those who know you, truly know you as Savior and Lord. I pray that these verses we've considered and looked upon might be anchored deep into our hearts for years and years and years to come. I pray that we would not forget the great extent to which you have gone and the great work to which you have made and put forth effort to accomplish our salvation and help us to realize it's not of man, it's of thee. I pray today that you'd work in the hearts and lives of people in this room and pray that your spirit may move in hearts of people who have never believed on Christ as Savior. And by your conviction of them, I pray that they may turn to the Lord Jesus Christ today and believe on him and leave here knowing for sure, for certain, because of the authority of your word, that they've been born again. I pray for believers who ought to come to follow you in believer's baptism, been saved, but have not followed you in believer's baptism. Help them to do so. And those of whom you've spoken to about joining fellowship with the New Life Baptist Church, pray you'll direct their steps. Help them to know your mind about this matter. And Father, I pray for those individual believers to whom you've spoken about matters that they need to address, some of which I may have not touched upon nor a passage of Scripture related to, but you have spoken. I pray you'll help them to respond accordingly. As we open the invitation for your work in our hearts, we know that none of this saves us. It's your great grace that does that. But if we have questions, concerns, or matters that we need to address, help folks to address them now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? 282 in your hymn book if you need one. Just as I am. If God has spoken to your heart this morning and you have questions you will need answers for, we're here to help. And we want to help you. Don't want you to leave here as you came if you're not right in right relationship with God. And it's not that we have all the answers, but the Word of God does. And we can connect you to them, and we'd be honored to do so. So if God has spoken to your heart about any matter this morning, we invite you to come as we sing. 282 verse 1. Let's sing together, please. Just as I am without one plea. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart, would you come? Thank you very much for your time today and for your attention. Thank you for spending your Sunday morning with us. And may I invite you to spend your Sunday evening with us. Six o'clock tonight, Brother Brian will open the scriptures to us. Patch will make a presentation. After that's finished, we'll go to the ministry building for a meal together. We invite you to come and be a part of it and enjoy the day. This is the Lord's Day.
We will rejoice and be glad in it. Hope you'll be with us. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word, both we've heard in Sunday school hour, the worship service, and look forward to the evening service to hear the same. Pray you'll guide and direct our steps through the afternoon, and may our thoughts be toward you. Direct our hearts in that direction, and pray remind us of the security that we have in your word, in you, in your word that you've spoken to us. Pray that you'd help us to hide these words in our heart, that we, Father, would not only not sin against you, but we would be secure for the years to come, even as long as this life lasts. Bless now, I pray as we go. Thank you for our guests, our visitors, our friends being with us this morning. Give them safety and protection through the afternoon along with our members. And I do pray you'll bless and draw us back to this place for the evening service tonight. Bless Brian as he opens your word to us. Guard his heart and guide his lips. And pray that the truth we hear will make us different and unique in this world that seems to be all so common and normal and usual as paganistic. Guide us, I pray, and use the services today to honor yourself. Bless our fellowship tonight. Bless the patch young people as they share with the church. Use all of these things to advance us in the maturing and our faith and growing in grace. Thank you again for the beautiful day. Help us to enjoy it, but remind ourselves that we need worship you and use this day to that end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You are dismissed.